0: Buddy, um, Welcome to another episode of Super Bugs Unplugged, and I'm here today with my trusty co-host, Dr. Lance Price. Hi, Lance. Hey, Matt. I'm,
1: I'm excited today. We're going to talk about STIs, or at least one STIs. really important this, one.
0: Yeah. Talk about discharge from genitals, from rectums, um, the king of STIs. Yeah, all kinds this of good is, stuff. This is very exciting. Yeah. <laughs> Well, how are you? How's the house coming along? I I know you had some moving moving struggles.
1: Oh, I'm I'm getting like firsthand lessons in environmental health. Oh, you know, lead abatement right now. Uh, It's it's funny. The front of the house has this plaque dedicated to this uh, this person who was a professor of public health and helped get lead out of paint. And the plaque is placed over a wall, a massive red wall painted with lead paint that's leaching into the environment right now. And, and so I I just, I'm going to put up a a plaque after we're done that says, you know, in the year 2021, hopefully if the city ever permits it, um, doctors Lance Price and Cindy Liu finally got rid of the lead paint on this
0: wall. Yes. Righted history's wrongs. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's,
1: it's pretty, it's a little stressful. Every time I walk through the door, I worry about lead. I do a lot of mopping these days, a lot of vacuuming, a lot of mopping.
0: Yeah, man. Um, I'm trying to buy a house fairly soon, so I will keep an eye out for the lead problems. Uh, it seems like there's a lot to worry about that, but anyway eventually all with babies and we know there's a baby coming there's a baby coming so for our listeners i think you've heard me say before my my wife is with child she's with child <laughs> and uh, it's coming coming quick it's, right it's coming real soon i mean it could technically be any day she's 36 weeks pregnant right now so it could be i mean my mom was telling me that um, she had my sister when she was 35 weeks so could be any day, but we're we're getting very close. The due date's October second, so less than a month away. It was just pretty wild, yeah. And I'll be taking off. We have to talk about that because I'll be off for the whole month of October. So you'll be you'll be repping Superbugs Unplugged without me for that month.
1: Oh my god, our listenership is going to go through the floor. It's going to go through the floor. You, you, you don't feel up to it? I think you can keep oh, it torch You know, I'll give it a shot, but. Well, I guess they can't see you. They can't see that you're the handsome one, so it's fine. Oh, God. No,
0: they can't see that I am uh, constantly disheveled is what they can't see. But that's, a, yeah, I think it'll be great. I think it'll be great. Um, well, we should get to our guest because, um, like we said, we, we have lots to discuss about antibiotic-resistant gonorrhea. So let me give our, our guest a, a real introduction here because he is quite the quite the catch for us here at Superbugs Bugs and Plugs. So we're going to talk to Dr. Jeffrey Klausner. Um, He is the he is the Clinical Professor of Population Public Health Sciences and Professor of Medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at the Keck School of Medicine at the University of Southern California. Uh, He was a deputy health officer Director of STD Prevention and Control Services at the San Francisco Department of Public Health. Um, He has done lots of great work on HIV and other STDs throughout his career. I believe he also worked with uh, the CDC at one point. Uh, So lots lots of expertise to to lend here with us. So I'm excited to get started with our conversation with Dr. Klausner. So everybody should stay tuned after the break. We will jump into our interview.
1: Hi, this is Laura Rogers, Deputy Director of the Antibiotic Resistance Action Center. If you like what you're hearing, could you do us a favor and rate, review, and subscribe to
0: the podcast? We'd really appreciate it. Now, let's get back to the episode. Okay. Hi, everybody. Um, we are back from the break, and thanks again for joining us for another episode of Superbugs Unplugged. And we've got a really exciting episode for you today. Uh, as I mentioned earlier with Lance, we're going to be joined by Dr. Jeffrey Klausner, Clinical Professor of Population and Public Health Sciences and Professor of Medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at the Keck School of Medicine at the University of Southern California. So, Dr. Klausner, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Really happy to be here. Absolutely. So
0: um, I am definitely eager to jump in and just hear a bit more about your background. So we're going to talk mostly about antibiotic-resistant gonorrhea today, and I think the dating world is rough enough, um, and and this is something people shouldn't have to necessarily worry about when they're out there in the world, but uh, it's more and more of a problem. So why don't you just start by telling us a little bit about your background and, and how you got into working on STIs?
2: Sure. Well, it's a little bit of a long-winded story, but I'll try to keep it to the point. Uh, When I was in medical school in the late 1980s, uh, most of my classmates were going into ophthalmology or OBGYN or orthopedics, and I had really no idea what I wanted to do. So, um, against the advice of all my advisors and mentors at cornell university medical college i took a year off and in 1989 uh, i paid uh, my i paid for myself to go to kinshasa zaire and i actually had no idea even where kinshasa zaire were and at the time we didn't have google maps so you had to actually go to the library and get a a atlas and look you know where, where this country zaire was and um i got there and they were doing some fascinating work on the heterosexual spread of HIV and the spread from mothers to uh, children and uh, newborns and trying to understand uh, the spread of HIV in this uh, population. So that became something really uh, interesting to me. And, you know, in the late 80s, it was kind of the call to, you know, for my generation of physicians and researchers, you know, to try to address HIV and HIV Prevention. Remember, that's about seven, eight years before we had combination therapy, so we didn't have any treatment, and it was, you know, devastating in New York City, which is where I was going to medical school. Um, and then I got back and I finished uh, medical school. And as we were trying to think about, you know, prevention of 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 HIV, it became apparent that there were important cofactors. There were these other. Diseases that people uh, acquire, things like syphilis and gonorrhea, chlamydia, and herpes. And if we can control those cofactors, we can actually prevent people from getting HIV. So uh, there it was. It was kind of uh, kind of a clear direction for me to try to address um, these sexually transmitted d- 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 diseases as a means to uh, prevent. Uh, HIV. So I, I went. I finished my um, my clinical training at Bellevue Hospital in the uh, early uh, 1990s, and then I uh, joined the CDC. And uh, when I was part of the Epidemic Intelligence Service or EIS, I was actually assigned to San Francisco, and I was very excited about that. As you know, at the time, I was not particularly keen about living in in Atlanta. Um, but living in San Francisco, uh, for a kid who grew up in New Jersey, it was a great, you know, opportunity for me. And I was actually assigned to the section around STDs. Um, HIV was part of that related, but the primary focus at the time for where I was assigned we were on outbreaks of syphilis, gonorrhea, chlamydia, trichomoniasis. And, um, I found, you know, those investigations and studying those things Uh, Fascinating, And then after I left CDC, um, after that two year training period, I wanted to do an infectious disease fellowship, and it turned out that the best place with with the kind of guru of STDs uh, at the time was a guy named King Holmes, and King was really the king uh, of STDs, and he was at University of Washington, so I applied there, I was lucky enough to get accepted. And um, really had some phenomenal training and experience. He sent me to the Philippines to work in Manila in uh, 1996 to study actually drug resistant gonorrhea in uh, sex workers. So, you know, for more than 25 years now, I've been you know, studying drug resistant gonorrhea and trying to learn, you know, the biology of it, uh, how to treat it better, and how to prevent it.
0: So you've been vying ever since for the title of King of STDs.
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, King is still with us. So King is still, still the with King. Okay.
0: So ongoing competition for that title. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure I'd want that title myself. <laughs> I'm not sure I would either. <laughs> uh, that's surprising, though. You said that you were working on drug-resistant gonorrhea back in, you said, 1996. Is that right?
2: Yeah, so, uh, you know, I was working in Thailand on um, HIV and tuberculosis in 93 and 94, and then uh, we were starting to recognize that gonorrhea, you know, was, um, you know, becoming un- untreatable. We had a great uh, antibiotic at the time in the mid-90s called Cipro, Ciprofloxacin. People probably Pretty familiar with Cipro, it's commonly used for urinary tract infections or some respiratory infections as well, Um, but we're starting to see resistance of gonorrhea to Cipro, uh, particularly in sex workers in the Philippines. So then walk
0: us through, because I know, know people probably have heard about gonorrhea, maybe have a slight understanding of what it actually does, but can you just paint the picture for our audience about what this STI is. And am I saying is it S T I or S T D?
2: Yeah, so that, that that's a good question too. So the CDC just in uh twenty twenty one, so this year, has moved from STD sexually transmitted disease to sexually transmitted infection. So not all infections cause d- disease, right? So disease is the kind of clinical or you know physical manifestations of infection like COVID, right? So we can get SARS-CoV-2 infection, be completely asymptomatic, but we don't have COVID-19 disease. So right. much of the world calls it STIs, sexually transmitted infections, to try to focus on prevention of the infection and not only the disease.
0: Gotcha. Okay. So, gonorrhea, tell us about what that infection does. You know, what does it do to people? If it goes untreated, what is the typical course of treatment? Just paint that picture for everybody.
2: Right. So, gonorrhea is caused by the bacterium Neisseria gonorrhea. And Neisseria gonorrhea has been around, as far as we know, for, you know, thousands of years. There's a little bit of Debate is it, you know, from truly from biblical times, or there's some newer data, you know, maybe the 13th, 14th century. But regardless, it's been around a long time, and typically it causes a discharge uh, from the genitals. So, a kind of uh, milky discharge from the penis, or a milky discharge from the Vagina. If someone gets gonorrhea in the rectum, it can cause a just discharge from the rectum, and we've also learned recently that it can affect the throat. Um, typically, if it affects the throat, um, it, the symptoms are very mild or not at all, but some people can have a uh, sore throat. So it, it's a germ that is spread through, you know, sexual contact, direct sexual contact. It's not spread, you know, from toilet seats, from you know, sharing towels or underwear or you know, sleeping in the same bed unless you're having penetrative intercourse. Um, it's effectively, you know, prevented by good condom use, and um, it can be, you know. Detected or diagnosed with, with a laboratory test, so either a urine test or a uh, swab test and um, at least right now in most places the world, it still can be effectively treated. Although every few years, we have to keep giving higher and higher doses of antibiotics and the United States, the recommended treatment is an injection. So it would be nice if we could just treat people with pills. But the only antibiotics we have available to treat this right now have to be given by injection.
1: We have finally taken this podcast where I wanted to go. I mean, now we're talking about discharges and and, and sex. This is great, Matt. Thank you for that uh, asking for that description,
0: yeah, and I made sure i had I had my lunch before we started recording this um by design. so can you so you mentioned we're you're having to give more and more antibiotics to treat the infections. How much of a problem is this in the u s how What are the caseloads like here? How common is it here? and then we'll get more into this idea of the drug resistance.
2: Yeah, so the CDC estimates that there are, you know, at least 600,000 New infections a year, uh, that's probably an underestimate because while you know it it can cause these discharges, in many people it can be asymptomatic. so you can carry it and not know it. and that's often what makes it difficult to uh, control its spread. So as we've learned, you know from SARS CoV two people can be infected, not know they're infected, and still spread it. So the same thing can happen with gonorrhea. You can carry it in your throat, you can carry it in the vagina. You can carry it in the rectum, in the penis, and you could uh, have no symptoms. But if you're having condomless sex, you can still spread the. Infection, uh, the big concern is uh, particularly in in women. So if it goes untreated, it can lead to inflammation of the fallopian tubes and tubal scarring and ultimately infertility uh, rarely. It can cause infertility in men, but but the real kind of public health focus is try to prevent infertility in women. Um, secondly, we've also learned, and this kind of dates back to my time in you know, Kinshasa Zaire in the late uh, 1980s, is that it's an important cofactor that amplifies the spread of HIV. So, um, between men who have sex with men, if one of the partners has gonorrhea, particularly gonorrhea of the rectum, if they get exposed to HIV, they're anywhere from five to ten times Five to 10 times more likely to acquire HIV.
0: Wow. Yeah. So, in terms of the treatments, so you said 600,000 infections a year. That's not a small number for treating um, these. And I've been like seeing snippets in the news about antibiotic gonorrhea, antibiotic resistant gonorrhea for a while now. And tell us about what that means. So, antibiotic resistant gonorrhea. What's that problem look like? How dire is it? You know, where are we at with that?
2: So um, as I mentioned, you know, in in, in the mid-1990s, we're able to just treat gonorrhea with a single pill with uh, 500 milligrams of ciprofloxacin. Then we kind of lost our ability because, you know, 70% of cases became resistant to ciprofloxacin. So then we had to move to um, another pill. We call this cefixime. It's a third generation cephalosporin. It's much more expensive. It's harder for public health clinics to get. It's not something that doctors routinely carry in their office. It might be something that you might have to go to multiple pharmacies to get. So, you know, just a, a, a more rare medication that, that only lasted for a couple of years. Then we quickly went to injectable ceftriaxone. So, You know, you can't easily get an antibiotic injection at the pharmacy, right? So you have to get it at a clinic or a doctor's office. And then the problem with giving uh, treatment via injection is like other STDs, STIs, you know, it's not just an infection of one person, it's an infection of the partner as well. So you have to get that partner treated. But now when you have to have that partner come in for an injection, it makes it much less likely that that partner is gonna be successfully treated. It's just more difficult for that person to come in. And then now uh, in 20, end of 2020, we, we just doubled the dose of ceftriaxone. So it went from a 250 milligram dose to a 500 milligram dose. Um, So that's a higher dose, a little bit more expensive, a little bit more uncomfortable to get the shot. And in some parts of the world, they use a gram, so a double dose above that. And in uh, some cases, we have to use three days of medication and sometimes even intravenous medication. So there's been some famous multidrug resistant cases that are resistant to the medication that we use is called ceftriaxone, which which have to be treated with three days of intravenous medication. So, can you imagine, you know, having to bring in 600,000 cases a year, you know, for three days of intravenous medication? I mean, that just would not be, you know, tenable. So, that's, you know, the concern, and that's the future we might be looking at if we can't get this under control.
1: So, I've heard stories of of strains, this is Lance, uh, of strains getting close to pan-resistance, is this – can you can you explain that concept for our listeners, and, and are we actually on the cusp with that?
2: Right. So the idea of, of pan-resistance – so, um, you know, what, what, one of the amazing things about antibiotics when they were, you know, first mm-hmm. – First discovered, you know, in, in really the 1930s, really it was, you know, sulfa medications were the first class of antibiotics. And then you had penicillins in the 1940s and then tetracyclines in the 1950s and on and on with, you know, every five to 10 years, a discovery of a new class. And it's an important idea that a, a, a class of antibiotic is very different than another class of antibiotic and has a different mechanism of, of action. So while one antibiotic in one class may work on the surface of the cell, the bacterial cell. Another will work, you know, to interfere with the DNA of that uh, bacterial cell. Another will work on the RNA of that bacterial cell. Another will work on the um, cell membrane. So, you know, the U.S. pharmaceutical industry constantly was producing new classes of antibiotics, which had new mechanisms of, of action. So we, 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 we could could just kind of gaily skip from one class to the next and not really worry about it. But the problem hit really about 15 years ago when we ran out of new classes of antibiotics, and the pharmaceutical industry stopped, you know, trying to produce uh, the, the next wonder drug in terms of antibiotics because they realized, you know giving an injection or a pill for a few days is not the same kind of, you know, return on their investment from a a profit perspective as giving, you know, a heart medication or a diabetes medication or, you know, the holy grail will be an Alzheimer's prevention medication, right, that someone may have to take every day for years and years and years. So short course um, medications uh, just became not profitable to, develop um, anymore. So, we, we, we are seeing uh, cases of gonorrhea that are resistant to penicillins, to tetracyclines, to fluoroquinolones, to cephalosporins, and there have been uh, cases where we might say, you know, TDR, totally drug-resistant gonorrhea. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, there would be some combination therapy or some super high-dose therapy that could... O- Overcome it, uh, but it does make it, you know, practically very difficult to treat, you know, on a case-by-case level in the clinic. Uh,
1: is there? Are we heading towards a time where you have to put a UV light into your penis? <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. So, so interesting. So, blue light therapy ha- has been, uh, you know, ha- has been um, described as a, you know, a way to, you know, ha- uh, treat certain kind of bacterial infection. So, we, we we're not there yet. And, they, you know, I mean, historically, before the advent of antibiotics, I mean, there, there, there were these metal catheters um, that got introduced into the penis that they would irrigate, you know, the, the tube at the end of the penis. They'd irrigate that with different chemicals like gentian violet or other kind of uh, antiseptics uh, because those were known to have a antibacterial effect. I mean, that was probably a a big disincentive to go to treatment, Um, but nevertheless, that that was the practice before developed um, antibiotics. Um, I mean, a, a new way though that we're thinking is you know to take advantage of the revolution in genomics, right? So, you know, there's been, you know, massive advances in understanding human genomics, but also similarly there's been advances in understanding the genomics of organisms, right? Of viruses we hear every day about these new variants with SARS-CoV-2. But we're also understanding bacteria. So what do we know about the genes of Neisseria gonorrhea? Can we use those genes to predict how we're going to treat uh these infections and um myself and others have come up with some of the genetic tests for gonorrhea which then could immediately be used to tell the doctor what's the best antibiotic to use to treat this patient.
0: And that would be important for not just gonorrhea, right? I mean I know antibiotic resistance that's the problem for a lot of the overuse in healthcare settings for any infection, right? They they just don't immediately know What's the infection what's the best antibiotic, so that could be really helpful beyond that too? is that right
2: right and then that's exactly. I mean, you know it's always hard to come up with a new idea in you know medicine or science, so we try to do is steal an idea from one one disease and try to apply it to the disease that you're interested in so we we took the idea that people have been applying to staph aureus. So people have heard of staph, right? And staph notoriously became resistant to penicillin and a lot of antibiotics many, many years ago. And um, inventors came up with a genetic test that could tell you you know, that this staph infection was resistant to this antibiotic, methicillin was the one they were talking about, or this, and what the best treatment was. So, as an infectious disease specialist, I was aware of that, but no one had applied it to gonorrhea. So, we took that kind of idea, applied it to to gonorrhea, and actually found out that there's a very simple genetic test that can be done in gonorrhea to determine, you know, will, will this antibiotic work or not.
1: So there's something special about gonorrhea, though, speaking of genetics, right? So if you compare it to chlamydia, I think where, you know, it's also another very common STI, but it's super susceptible, right, to antibiotics. What's, What's biologically different about those two?
2: Right so one thing about neisseria gonorrhoeae is we 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 say it's it's very promiscuous so and it's got it's got uh these biological features that cause it to like suck up and inhale uh you know dna or other kind of genetic elements in its environment so it is quite normal you know for um, an individual to have other bacteria in their throat right we know our throat is not sterile Um, there's normal flora microbiota the microbiome of the throat that microbiome or the normal flora the normal bacteria, you know, coats our skin, it's inside the vagina, it's inside the, you know, rectum. So, when gonorrhea then goes into this environment where there's other bacteria around, it has a tendency to interact with those other bacteria and pick up genetic elements. And it picks up these genetic elements and some of those genetic elements give it, you know, superpowers and confer resistance in that gonorrhea organism. Chlamydia is a very, very different uh, organism. So, it's an intracellular, Organism, it lives inside the cell, it doesn't really have its life cycle outside the cell. So, um, gonorrhea you can grow on a you know culture plate with basic nutrients, chlamydia you have to grow in tissue culture, you have to grow it on a plate with cells because it can only live inside cells and then it goes from cell to cell. So, uh, partly because of those different biological characteristics. Um, um, chlamydia really has not acquired resistance, and then it hasn't evolved to, you know, escape current antibiotic therapy. I mean, there is one case of chlamydia suis, which is a chlamydia that infects pigs, which has become uh, resistant to one class of antibiotics. So every time, you know, the cognoscenti get together and talk about chlamydia resistance, everyone always brings up this one pig uh, example. But so, which is the STI that causes, you know, infertility and discharge in men and women and rectal infections, everything else, uh, that has never become um, resistant to our current antibiotics. So, so I,
1: I kind of think of gonorrhea,
2: you know. As trying on
1: dna like an athlete you know like a runner might try on shoes to see if they help them perform better right so they're just they're just always trying on dna to see if it makes them you know run faster or escape the drugs i guess right
2: yeah yeah And, and and also i mean in the throat so we've learned actually the throat is uh one of the most important reservoirs where Neisseria you know, tries on the most shoes. Let's keep that analogy going. So the throat's like the Foot Locker, and uh, part of that is because there's other Nasira species that normally live in the throat. There's something called commensals, and actually, it was we had this uh, <laughs> only in my house. We had a discussion about commensals yesterday at dinner, but uh, people were talking about you know, the commensals are. Organisms that have a symbiotic relationship where both help each other as opposed to parasitism where one you know, organism just like w- w- withdraws all the energy and life from the second organism. Commensals, they both exist and coexist. So there are Neisseria commensal species, Neisseria sinera*, Neisseria flavus, that uh, live in the throat normally. And that's part of your normal, healthy uh, bacteria. And so when... Now Siri gonorrhea lands in the throat, it sees its cousins there, and then, yeah, they start interacting and start sharing DNA and start you know sharing comfortable shoes
0: Wow, your dinner party conversation um, is very different from mine, <laughs> so
1: it's very similar to mine. I live with
0: <laughs> a biologist <laughs> um, so you know all of this has me thinking what do we what do we do so I mean first off'm I'm, I'm curious why this isn't more widely known. Like if I was a younger man in college, I would have liked to have known that, you know, if you get gonorrhea, you might not be able to get treated. Um, What does that look like when it comes to health education? Like, is this being taught in health ed classes and high schools and colleges, whatever that might be?
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, you know, sexual health education in the United States is, you know, absolutely terrible. Right, so, you know, half the states basically just teach kids not to have sex. And, you know, I I always say it's like teaching kids how to ride a bike and just telling them, you know, the best way to ride a bike is not to ride a bike. You want to learn how to ride a bike? Don't ride a bike. I mean, so we need to really, uh, you know, grasp the idea that we need to teach people about sexual health, about reproductive health, that this is, you know, uh, a normal process of, you know, of of being alive. And, you know, in, in most, you know, high schools, which is, you know, the the place where they typically do have the mandated course, I mean, it really hasn't evolved since when I was in high school. You have the gym teacher or the, you know, guidance counselor doing one hour in four years of high school education, you know, on sexual health, which includes, you know, now fortunately includes consent. So there's a lot of a lot of dialogue about consent and getting permission for sexual activities between you and a partner. There's also more discussions around diversity, right? The diversity of uh, sexual preferences and identities, we, we, you know, which is great. There's also more discussion about contraceptives, and in that same hour, you still have to get out the information about, you know, herpes and chlamydia and syphilis and gonorrhea. So unfortunately, it's just really not a lot of uh, information that's effectively shared. A lot of people do go to the internet, obviously, you know, and they get their sexual health information uh, from the internet, which like, you know, anything else is buyer beware. So there's a lot of misinformation out there. There's a lot of information which is guided to, you know, um, prevent people from sexual pleasure and from enjoying sex and people learn from, you know, friends. And we spend a lot of time, you know, when I was in San Francisco, as the health official responsible for, like, sexual health um, ed- education and 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 awareness, you know, we spent a lot of time trying to, you know, come up with innovative ways for people to learn uh, about sexual health, to learn about the signs and symptoms. We had, you know, campaigns on the sides of buses and bus shelters, et cetera. But, you know, this was in San Francisco, which was a pretty, you know, open and liberal place that would, you know, tolerate, you know, if if you will, direct consumer advertising about sexual health. But if you think about, you know, most of the place in the United States, and I think I'm afraid it's only getting worse. You know, it's really hard to, you know, educate people about uh, about sexual health and then about STIs in particular.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously it sounds like best thing is to not catch gonorrhea and for that practice safe sex, but in terms of treatment, so given the problems with drug resistance, what do you see as the path forward? How do we tackle this in the medical field? What what kind of policies should we be thinking through um, for public health policy on this? What would you, how do we move forward on it?
2: Right. So I think, you know, there's, there's, you know, definitely multiple different levels that we. We, we we need to address, I mean, the COVID-19 pandemic has really, you know, revealed our failed, you know, public health system, right? So traditionally in public health, you know, every day that nothing happens is a good day. And, um, you know, nothing was happening that people were very concerned about for, for decades. And, and, you know, that caused the defunding of the entire public health infrastructure. And, um, you know, now we know that the costs of not having a effective public health system that can monitor, that can conduct surveillance, that can evaluate interventions, that can develop evidence-based policies, that has, you know, trained leaders, right? I mean, uh, not to be disparaging to the recent heads of the CDC, right? But these were not people who like grew up in the CDC, you know, training program and were, you know, longstanding CDC medical officers. These are political appointees, you know, and it's like, imagine, you know, okay, you make the head of Goldman Sachs a political appointee as they're, you know, friends of some member of the board or something. I mean, it just would not make business sense to put people not trained in public health in leadership positions. So we have a lot of Policy work to do to rebuild our public health infrastructure, and for gunnery in particular, you know that that includes counting cases, it includes you know counting cases that are drug resistant, uh, reporting those regularly on a on a local level. So constituents, whether it be local policymakers like you know boards of supervisors, you know mayors, uh, county officials are aware of the problem. So in, in San Francisco, we had a monthly report. Of gonorrhea cases, that went out to over 1,100 different uh, community leaders, including you know clergy, including you know schools, including hospital executives, including physicians, including you know outreach workers, and you know it's unfortunately that kind of went by the wayside and it was never really picked up and replicated. But I think information and communication and you know monitoring is, is a key part of that then the, the 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 next part is to really think about okay are there are there ways you know we can treat this differently so uh I, I mentioned we do have genetic tests that we can look at the organism and see what antibiotics work and don't work. We call that resistance guided therapy so how do we you know expand this concept of resistance guided therapy so right now we don't have any fDA approved diagnostic tests for this um, you know. And we can't really hold the FDA accountable for that. We have to hold the manufacturers accountable to it, who have to bring the devices and the test to the FDA for approval. Um, that's slowly happening, but you know, there's not a lot of public demand for you know a new gonorrhea test, as there you know has been for a, you know a rapid SARS-CoV-2 test, right? So part of that is awareness and demand. Um, uh, Generation. And then, you know, thirdly, there's still a lot of, you know, primary prevention that, uh, you know, could be done. So the CDC does recommend, you know, every sexually active female gets screened for chlamydia and gonorrhea every year until the age of 25. Um, Those recommendations are a lot less clear in sexually active men, but um, nevertheless, people could get screened on a regular, annual basis. Screening leads to treatment, treatment leads to reduction. In the number of new infections, and that would, you know, uh, help control the spread, and, and then ultimately, and this is, you know, our kind of holy grail in this field is a vaccine. Right. So uh, there could be a Neisseria gonorrhea vaccine. Oh. There is a vaccine for Neisseria meningitis known as the meningitis vaccine. So that so Neisseria meningitis is a very closely related organism. It's part of the cousins that typically also lives in the throat to Neisseria gonorrhea. So there is a great there are two uh, Neisseria Meningitis vaccines that are recommended, you know, for college kids and people living in congregate living situations, et cetera. So we need to, like, promote and push manufacturers to develop a vaccine for gonorrhea and that ultimately, you know, would be our our best shot, uh, pun intended, to uh, eliminate gonorrhea.
0: So I thought it was pretty striking. I don't think you mentioned developing new antibiotics as part of that path forward. Was that deliberate, or yeah? What do you what do you think about that?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, that's it, kind of the you know old strategy, you know, to depend on the pharmaceutical industry. You know, every five to ten years to come up with a new antibiotic. I just don't think that's realistic to rely on that because, you know, what the field wants is is a single dose, inexpensive oral medication that costs a dollar, and you know, six hundred thousand cases is six hundred thousand dollars a year in, you know, uh remuneration and uh it's just not motivating for the, you know, industry to come up and invest through something that costs, you know, tens of millions of dollars in uh it in it Investment. I mean, you know, part of that is because of our broken system, depending on you know capitalism to you know generate solutions for you know our 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 medical problems. Um, you know, if, if we lived in a different kind of society, you know, the you know federal government or you know the people could choose and say, okay, well, we should have a publicly funded drug development program, you know, and we do fund the NIH, right? That's publicly funded research, but then we transfer that intellectual property into the hands of the private sector to reap the benefits on that. So, I mean, we just have a, a, a broken system and, you know, perhaps not until one of our congressional representatives gets, you know, a really bad case of hard-to-treat gonorrhea. Is anyone going to wake up and you know, will there
0: be a difference? Right. That's had to have happened already. I was gonna say, I'd be a little surprised. Um, Yeah, I mean, that's, I I was glad to hear you not mention developing new antibiotics, because we hear this all the time, um, that that's, you know, we talk a lot about stopping the overuse of antibiotics in lots of different settings, including in agriculture. And one of the constant refrains I hear back is well we need to develop new drugs that's the solution when you know it's not it's just kicking the can down the road unless we solve some of the key you know behavioral problems um, so let me pause here because I think we're we've been gone for a little while Lance do you feel like there's anything we didn't cover yet that you want to cover here
1: Oh it would have been fun I, I I think it's hard to sew it in but it would have been fun to note that the Chlamydia suis is resistant to tetracyclines, and tetracycline is the most commonly used drug in food animal production. So the so it does point to some extreme selective pressure in food animal production. That they that the one place where you see it is pigs. But I think it's it's a bridge too far for this one. I think
0: is it though? Because I was curious to ask that of, of Dr. Klausner, Like, what are the drugs? Are there uses for the antibiotics that treat gonorrhea? that are totally non-related that you think might be contributing to the overall resistance?
2: Yeah, so I mean, I, you know, I would say yes. Yeah, so the big class, you know, that we were, became concerned about in the mid-1990s, I mentioned is ciprofloxacin, which is a fluoroquinolone, right. And, you know, fluorocoinolones and uh, these tetracyclines are used, you know, in animal production as, you know, quote, growth promoters. And they don't even, sometimes they're not even sold under the name of antibiotic they're just sold as a growth promoter and they're you know put into the feed of you know animals and um, you know because humans interact with uh, animals and they get this you know cross pollination of these drug resistant elements and uh, you know that contributes, particularly something as you know readily, um, you know malleable and transformable as as Neisseria gonorrhea. So when like PhD students and researchers want to study antibiotic resistance, they often study gonorrhea because it can be transformed and changed so readily that they can you know start to really take a deep dive into the mechanisms.
0: Right. So it's I imagine it's it's not necessarily the kind of thing you can draw a direct line uh, between this antibiotic use on farms and now this particular, you know, drug resistant infection from gonorrhea. But it's like a whole soup. Right. It's like once you put the select I see Lance making a face. Is that not, is that I, not think, the, I mean, I think the the chlamydia suis is such a uh, uh, an
1: interesting example. I mean, I do. I mean, I, I certainly believe. And this ecological problem of antibiotic use and food animal production, antibiotic use in people and and when you think about gonorrhea and its 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 natural competency, its ability to pick up DNA from as it you know goes through the throat or in the rectum, you know it could come in contact i guess with those you know, resistance genes that have origin and food animal production. But I mean, I just think that it's, it feels like too much of a stretch for, you it's know, because stretch. you and I are already known for pushing this one issue a little too far. So maybe
0: <laughs> we shouldn't bring it into this one. Yeah. Let's not get into that then. Um, okay. So I think we'll ask you our, our last question that we ask all of our guests. I'll let Lance ask it because it's his favorite question. Um, so why don't you go for it, Lance? Okay. So we've,
1: we've, we've talked about a lot of uh, interesting and kind of scary things today. So, I, I'm really interested in, you know, what, what scares you, what freaks you out?
2: Well, I, get, I mean, the thing that freaks me out within the world of STIs uh, would be, you know, drug-resistant syphilis, actually. Um, because syphilis, you know, untreated becomes a lifelong infection that becomes devastating to the, you know, heart and the large vessels of the body. It becomes devastating, you know, to the brain. I mean, we have all these stories back from like, you know, the 17 and 1800s about people who became, you know, mad and crazy from, you know, chronic uh Uh, syphilis. So um, if and when syphilis were to become uh, resistant, I mean, it's already resistant to azithromycin, which is one of the antibiotics that we we thought we could use in the past to treat syphilis, but fortunately it remains very susceptible to penicillin, which is still our go-to antibiotic, even though there are penicillin shortages and there are stockouts and it's hard to get penicillin in many parts of the world. And a single injection of penicillin can cost you $350 because um, the expense that goes along to manufacturing what we thought was an inexpensive um, antibiotic. So in the world of SD- STIs, that would scare me the most.
1: Yeah, I, I, I saw an episode of the Nick, and they were, you know, uh, they were talking about syphilis and, and uh, I, you know, nose prosthetics and and nose reconstruction surgeries at the turn of last century and it just it looked uh terrifying to me and so yeah let's uh, that freaks me out too so let's let and on a positive note what what gives you hope well you know
2: what 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 gives me hope is still you know the scientific enterprise right so I mean we the United States funds you know scientific research and investigation at the level of NIH you know more than all the other countries in the world combined you know we have tens and tens of billions of dollars invested into scientific research our our universities are still you know producing amazing scientists and you know, th- there's still a demand, right, for people to go into, you know, medical science and research, it's still a valued uh, profession and a and a life pursuit. So, you know, that, that gives me um, encouragement and that's why I actually enjoy working at the university now after having left CDC and public health full time is, you know, I get to tap into this new exciting energy about, you know, smart people really want to make a difference.
0: That's a good way to end it. So thank you so much, Dr. Klausner, for joining Lance and I. This has been a terrifying, but very good discussion. um, And we'll look forward to keeping an eye on everything you're doing with antibiotic resistant gonorrhea and all other things related to the king of STIs. Thanks
1: for listening to this month's episode of Superbugs Unplugged. We really appreciate it, and we hope you enjoyed the episode. I'm Laura Rogers, Deputy Director for ARAC. Now that you've listened to us, we'd love to hear from you. Please send any questions you have our way, and we'll do our best to answer them in future episodes. We'd also love to hear your ideas for topics you'd like us to cover in the coming months. You can reach us at superbugsunplugged at gmail.com. And one last thing. If you'd like to help us spread the word, please give us a five-star review and ask your friends and colleagues to subscribe. We can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and every major listening app. We'll talk to you again next month.